Once again, today I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. Um, and I'm just wondering whether you've ever reflected on your internal compass. You know, that little guiding force that's inside you that helps you to um, choose on when it comes to the decisions that you make. What makes you choose to do one thing over another? For some, they might hear the voice of a parent just in the background saying, do it this way, do it this way, tidy your room, no, no, uh, whatever it might be. Uh, for, for others, it might be someone else that was significant in their life um, who is almost like that compass that magnetically guides them through life. Who or what is it for you that helps to guide you through the journey of life that you're on? So I'll just grab the microphone and um, as I said, I'm interested in hearing for you who, who that might be or what that might be. It may, it may have been a book that you read or a movie that you saw that was a, a really significant influence. What helps to be that internal compass for you? Just pop up your hand and I'll race around with the microphone. Good on you, Lynn. I have a friend who is a Christian. Her name is Angela. Mm -hmm. And we've been friends for... 50 years, yep. <laughs> and uh, on 50. almost every point of politics about the church, about yep. women in ministry, about a whole range of different issues, we disagree. Mm -hmm. But in fact, we decided a long time ago that we loved each other in Christ, and we uh, remain really good friends. And what encourages me is the thought of her as a really good person yep. who gives to others, who is selfless, who is a very loving friend in my life, and that's yeah. through Jesus. Wow, that's wonderful. And it's nice to have those people that challenge us, help us to go a bit deeper in our thinking and what we believe in. And that's like, Helen? I, I found that my father was a great influence on me. He was very yep. strict growing up, mm -hmm. and uh, I couldn't move. I had to do everything I was told. However, at the age of 37, I found myself parted from my husband mm -hmm. and I had five children to become a father and mother to. Yeah. I then put his thoughts into what he taught me, very strict. Yeah. However, it worked out. My children never got into trouble. Yeah. And sometimes they, uh, we would sit around the dining room table after dinner if there was a problem, what yeah. my father would do, mm -hmm. and we would discuss the problem. Yeah. And if it wasn't resolved then, it would be resolved the next day. Yeah. Yep. And I thank my father, mm. who was so strict with me yep. and gave me great inspiration. And even today at this age, yep. I still think of what he would do when I have to make a decision. Wonderful. Yeah, and it's amazing. What, what would Dad do? Okay, well, yeah, that's, that's something. Anyone else? Yep. Thanks, Ron. I guess what drives uh, a lot of my decisions is thinking, what what would Christ have done in this situation? Yep. And uh, it's kind of a guiding thing is that I've tried to, through my life, some often failing, mm. but trying to follow in the steps of Jesus. Yeah. Yep. No, that's really significant. Um, I'm not sure whether you've been um, around in... Christian bookshops and, and that sort of stuff, but I recall talking to one of the, the top people in Kurong, 
um, and Ron, you were talking about um, what would Christ do? You might recall that there was those bracelets, those little rubber wristbands that went around for a while. WWJD, what would Jesus do? And it was interesting that they were the most stolen thing from Kurong. Um, and you've got to wonder, okay, here you go, you've got what would Jesus do and everyone's stealing them. Um, but that's just as an aside. But yes, it's, it's very significant. Okay, what would Christ do in this situation? What would, if Jesus was in this space that I'm in, um, how might he respond? Um, and that's really significant. Not only do individuals um, have some form of guiding principles, but also organisations do as well. Churches um, and, and a place like Northern Community and CareWorks develop a personality and a character all of their own and the way that they behave and the way we as a, a church respond to circumstances. Churches tend to have this internal compass that guides them in the decisions and the directions that they take. And of course, every church would say, oh, well, Jesus leads us, Jesus guides us. But it's interesting how many different directions churches can go in that. It should not come as any surprise to us that Jesus also had a compass, a guiding principle, or as I would like to say, a manifesto, a, a, a collection of, of values and beliefs that helped to guide the decisions that he made, helped to shape the Messiah that he is. If you have your Bibles with you, then I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, where we'll discover not only Jesus' manifesto, the guiding principles, the values, the, the themes that um, held him like a compass guiding him through the three years of ministry that he had. But we will also discover that this manifesto also almost got him killed within the first few months of ministry. Now, what on earth did Jesus do or say that had God-fearing people in the Nazareth synagogue attempt to push Jesus off the cliff to his death? So let's dive in, um, pardon the pun, let's um, have a look at Luke chapter 4 verses 14 to 30 and have a look at what's going on here and what God might be also saying to us today. And we're actually going to come back to this passage again next week. So we'll read through the passage, um, we'll give it some context, some really important context and what I believe that God may be saying to us today and its impact for us today. So let's look at Luke chapter 4, 14 to 30, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation, and the words are also on the screen behind me. Then Jesus returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Reports about him spread quickly through the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the Scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be freed, and that the time of the Lord's favour has come. 
Then he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Then he began to speak to them. This scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be? They asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said, you will undoubtedly quote this proverb, physician, heal yourself, meaning do the miracles here in your hometown like you did in Capernaum. But I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. In verse 25, certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three years, three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them. He was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow in Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. But the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of a hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. You know, in pastoral ministry, they talk about a honeymoon period. That initial window of time when most people love you and you can seem to do no wrong. Then comes a change and people become a little bit more critical of the decisions and the directions and the things that you um, do Grumblings get louder and and it's almost as if the rose-coloured or the rose-tinted lenses fall out of their frames and the pastor becomes all too human. Often the timing of this is around 12 to 18 months of being in ministry. And it's interesting for Jesus, he didn't even make it that long. It seems that it's only in the the first few months of his ministry that the honeymoon period wears off. And remember that 40 days of that, he was out bush and he wasn't talking to anyone in the community. So in verse 14, has Jesus returned from his 40 days in the wilderness? And the Holy Spirit is intimately present and powerfully at work in Jesus' life. While Jesus was out bush, John the baptizer had continued to direct people's attention to the coming of the Messiah. And we see um, in the first three chapters of John this happening again and again. John the baptizer reported along with others and they, they, they spoke about this new rabbi, this Jesus, who captured the attention and the favor of the people. And so Jesus returns from being in the wilderness and he starts his teaching tour as a new rabbi. On arrival at several of the synagogues in Galilee, Jesus was regularly invited to come forward and to offer some teaching to those who had assembled. And people loved him. Jesus got rave reviews. If he had a Facebook page or an Instagram account, he would have been getting followers and likes and all these wonderful things. And then in verse 16 the shift of location happens to Jesus' hometown. For about 17 years, 
Jesus would have learned his trade as a carpenter during the day. And in the evening, Jesus most likely would have joined the local Habarim, which is a word meaning the friends. It was basically like a, a group of working class um, Israelites, of working class Jews that would study the law together and to look at how it would apply to their everyday life. The traditional Bible study group that you might be aware of. Now, Nazareth was apparently a very conservative, nationalistic village that was passionate to see Israel return to its rightful place as an independent nation, a nation that they believed was superior to the surrounding countries of the world. It would have been in a town such as Nazareth that instead of the Rise Up Australia Party, the Rise Up Israel Party might have been established. So verse 16 says, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, where this was written. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favour has come. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down, which was the normal position of someone taking a teaching role in the synagogue. You stand to read the scripture, you sit to teach. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, and then he began to speak to them. This scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Now, depending on your understanding of this next verse, either the fickle crowd turns suddenly, or there is this brewing disquiet against Jesus. Everyone spoke well of him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be? They asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? If we understand that everyone spoke well of Jesus in verse 22, then it seems almost as if it's out of the blue and out of character that the crowd suddenly turns and a riot ensues. Moments later, Jesus finds himself at the edge of a cliff. The word translated well, or in other translations, for him, is actually only implied. It's not actually written in the original text. And as Kenneth Bailey suggests, it could just as easily be translated as everyone spoke against him. The alternative translation gives weight to a growing uncomfortableness to what Jesus was saying. The synagogue audience are squirming in their seats. But just in case anyone was unsure of the mood of the synagogue audience, Jesus deliberately pokes the bear. Predicting the audience's provocation in verse 23 and their brewing calls for Jesus to prove himself as his, in his messianic claims, Jesus can see the steam coming out of the ears of his audience. He's, as they sat, their jaws are clenched and their faces are going red. And rather than backing off, Jesus turns the gas up too high. 
to an extreme nationalistic crowd of right-wing Rise Up Israel party members, Jesus starts quoting from 1 Kings 17, how Yahweh God that they both worship bypassed the widows of Israel and through Elijah showed favour to a foreigner. On making sure that Jesus got his point across, there were many lepers in Israel. But as we read two weeks ago in 2 Kings chapter 5, Elisha healed a foreign army commander who had previously routed the nation of Israel and those um, Israelites that Naaman and his forces didn't kill, he took captive. Unable to contain their rage any longer, mob mentality took hold, as we read in verse 28. When they heard this, the people of the synagogue were furious, jumping up. They mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. The crowd is screaming, bloody murder! And like a wave of seething anger, they carried Jesus to the edge of the cliff. But as we read in John chapter 7, verse 30, Jesus' time had not yet come. And so through the sovereign hand of Yahweh God, Jesus elusively slips through the crowd before the dust drifts off the edge of the cliff and Jesus has gone. In light of the flow of the account in Luke chapter 4, there's good reason to consider that instead of the normally translated speaking well of Jesus or speaking for Jesus in Luke 4.22, that perhaps we should better understand it that the audience was speaking against Jesus, that they were bearing witness against Jesus. Everyone spoke against or again, uh, uh, were bearing witness against him and was amazed by the gracious words that came from his lips. How can this be, they asked. Isn't this Joseph's son? So what Kenneth Bailey and others are suggesting that it's more like, how dare he? How can he speak such gracious words? Isn't this Joseph's son? Doesn't he know better? Doesn't he know that this goes against everything that we stand for? But even before we get to Luke chapter 4, 23. The mood has changed in Nazareth. Have you ever had a favourite story or a song or a poem that your heart is just loves to bits and, and you, you go to hear it recited or sung or read and you, you go to experience it and they just butcher it? And it's like you want to stand up and scream, no, 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 no. That is not the way it's meant to go. How can you do that for God's sake? Do it right, please. Well, that's what's most likely going on in the minds of Jesus' audience. You see, for this nationalistic group, these people that knew Jesus, knew his family, knew his mother, knew Jesus' earthly father, knew his brothers and sisters. Jesus, you are one of us. And you're reading Isaiah 61, which just resonates so deeply with us. And you're only telling half the story. And if you're the Messiah, then you're leaving out the best, the most important bits. You see, for this audience, 
Jesus would have had them eating out of his hand as he was reading, uh, and, and they would have been on the very edge of their seats as he starts to read from Isaiah 61. They're thinking, this is great. This is a great passage. This is good. If it was a South, um, uh, 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 if it was a Southern African American audience, they would have been waving their white handkerchiefs. They would have been um, bouncing up and down on their seats. They would have been clapping their hands, and they would have been crying out, "Preach it, Jesus! Preach it!" And Jesus starts to read Isaiah 61 and the passage. But just as Jesus gets to the very best bits, you know those bits that the tide turns in. And these Gentile nations, these people that are currently oppressing the Israelite nation, they get their own ends. They get what's coming to them. Overthrowing the Roman Empire, all that they've done to hurt us will now be turned on its head. And now like a breath of fresh, sweet, sweet air, all the nations of the world will come to Israel and they will bring treasures, wave after wave of treasures and they will serve the Jewish nation. Jesus' audience was on the edge of their cushions, hanging out for those beautiful words that they longed to hear, to hear them being spoken by Jesus. Words like Isaiah 61 verse 2, He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the day of the Lord's favour has come and with it, the day of God's anger against their enemies. Isaiah 61 verses 5 to 7, Foreigners will be your servants. They will feed your flocks and plough your fields and tend your vineyards. You will be called priests of the Lord, ministers of our God. You will feed on the treasures of the nations and boast in their riches. Instead of shame and dishonour, you will enjoy a double share of honour, You will possess a double portion of prosperity in your land and everlasting joy will be yours. Jesus leaving out these verses was like ripping the heart out of Isaiah 61 and dropping it on the floor and stomping on it. Like burning an Australian flag in front of an Australian nationalistic right-wing meeting. To do that was to take your life in your very hands. And that's precisely what Jesus knowingly did. Why? What on earth is going on in Jesus' mind that would want to point this out to the crowd? Well, Luke wants to make apparent, starkly apparent, to every person that reads this story, this Jesus story, that Jesus' manifesto, that Jesus shows grace for everyone. He has come to be the Messiah for the world, including our enemies. Not just people like me. And sometimes that is a message that others don't want to hear. Jesus came to save me, but not the pedophile. Jesus came to save me, but not the one who votes for a party that I just abhor. Jesus came to save me, but not the user of family violence. Jesus came to save me, but not those who are unjust to me or those that I love. As much as we may not like to hear it, sometimes we can slip into 
that Nazareth crowd and say that others deserve to be sent to hell, but that I deserve better. I deserve to be extended God's grace, but not the one who hurts me. That's what those in the Nazareth synagogue believed. But as comfortable as it is for us to hear, none of us deserve God's grace. And that's the whole point. Jesus, God's Messiah, came to generously extend to us God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's grace. Consider John 3, 16 and 17 or Hebrews 4, 16. And as recipients of God's grace, as followers of Jesus, we are called to extend God's grace to others. That does not mean that others get away with doing whatever the heck they want. Jesus doesn't endorse that idea, and nor does this passage suggest that. God is a just God, and he is the righteous judge. But as followers of Jesus, we are called to carry God's grace into the open, and at times into the darkest of places, and to the people that we meet. The good news is that Jesus is for everyone. And next week, we're going to look at some more of Luke chapter 4 and flesh out some more of this grace-filled manifesto and how followers of Jesus, how we, as followers of Jesus, are called to continue Jesus' ministry into the world in which we live. But for today, how might we respond? Well, I wonder if you wanted to pull out those response cards, what area of life do you find that you need God's grace applied afresh to you? Almost like a healing or a soothing balm to bring healing to those tough places. What hurt do you carry that you want to cry out for God's soothing grace to be applied? Or another thing that you might want to respond to is to whom might God be calling on you to extend grace? Who is it that you're just finding really, really tough to deal with? A work colleague, someone else, a neighbour? Who is God calling you to extend grace to? Some music's going to be played and I invite you to use those response cards to respond as you feel God is leading you today. God bless you.